0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, we said last week, I said last week, that we can't really talk about worship and liturgy appropriately with uh, with just a pure lecture format kind of thing. That would be boring, first of all, because this is really late in the evening, and I would put you to sleep. But also, uh, it's just appropriate that we sing unto God. Um, so would you uh, stand? We're going to sing a, a medley of songs. And I know this first one will be new to um, almost all of you. So that's why I have the sheet music up there. Maybe it'll be a little bit easier to follow. But if you, if you notice, this tune is called uh, Trinity Song. It's by Sandra McCracken, And it has an A line up top and a B line up bottom. So an- Andrew and I will sing through uh, A once and then I'll invite you to sing A with us. Then we'll sing through B once uh, and then invite you to sing B with us. And then what we're going to do, we're gonna get creative here. I'm gonna ask the ladies to take the top line Twice, while the gents take the bottom line twice. All right, you got that. And then we're gonna switch it to where the men will take the top line twice, the women will take the bottom line twice, and then we're all gonna to sing together on A. So uh, I'll be I'll I'll be directing. You. Don't worry, don't. The second week of winter term. This is almost just as good of attendance as, as last week, which is like, they told me last week, the first week's your best week, so I don't, I don't think that's true. I think week two is where it's at. Um, winter term is a time when we Oh, I should introduce myself. My name's Joel Littlepage. I'm one of the pastors at Grace Mosaic, pastor of worship and formation at Grace Mosaic, our northeast congregation in the Grace DC Network. Um, winter term is a time we take out Traditionally, as pastors, to just teach on a subject in more in depth. Um, this is the last year we'll be we're doing this like this. We're going to take a break from this model next year, and we'll switch to a network-wide conference that we'll call WinterCon. Uh, at least that's the prototype name. At this point, it'll be like a Friday night, Saturday all-day kind of deal. And I think that'll be on the 20th and 21st of January. I haven't checked with Kara, but she's out there, so she didn't even. She can't even correct me. All right, so, twenty or 21st, so just put that on your calendar. Um, You have made your way into a class, a three-week lecture series called The Sanctuary, the City, and the Street, Worship, Culture, and Ordinary Life. And this is what these series of lectures are seeking to address. Why do we do the things we do in worship? What do they mean? And how do they form us as the people of God? How can we pray and work towards a unified expression of worship in the midst of cultural diversity and division in 2020 America? And how can the leaders and participants of worship today reclaim a vision and practice of, and this is what we'll talk about tonight, Catholic, contextual, cross-cultural, and counter-cultural worship? So we're going to seek to answer those questions together Last week, I introduced the framework for a biblical theology of worship, walking through the shape of Christian worship, or liturgy, and the whole story of the Bible to Christian worship and the shape of Christian worship throughout time. And I gave us five C's, and you weren't supposed to see them if you were here last week. What were those five C's? Called, called, cleansed, cleansed. consecrated, communing, Mm -hmm. and commissioned. What we said is I, I used an illustration about my childhood. I grew up with a big drainage ditch behind my house, if you remember. And a drainage ditch, if you grew up in the suburbs, right, all the storm water comes off the street and it goes into this large drainage ditch. Well, I used to go back there and play all day. It was my playground for hours. And around dinner time, sometime in the evening, my mom would call me in uh, for dinner. You know, she would say in her southern accent, Joel, it's time for dinner. Uh, And I would come in for the meal. And what we said last week is that fundamentally worship and the framework for worship in the Bible is that worship is the feast of God's love. And when God calls his people to worship, he rings a holy dinner bell for us to come in for the meal. And secondly, I would come in from outside and I would be dirty from the day of playing. And my mom would say, Joel, wash your hands. And this is a framework in the Bible, too, that God cleanses of people. And then I would sit down, having been cleansed, uh, whether I took a shower or washed my hands, at the table, and I would take note of the family that God has placed me in. And that's what we say in the third seed. God sets apart a people as a family. God marks them out. And finally, we ate together, the feast of love. And after being fed, we were blessed to go out and play and serve and work and live in this world. So... Called the holy dinner bell, cleansed the washing of hands, consecrated the family, communing the feast of love, and commissioned the blessing. And tonight we're going to talk about, basically, this class is called Sanctuary, the City, and the Street. If that is the story, those first five C's, if that's the story we tell in the sanctuary of Christian worship, and throughout time, the people of God have told this story about a God who calls, who cleanses, consecrates, communes, and commissions, Well, the thing about it is that story is being told in a variety of sanctuaries in every city, isn't it? Christian worship may be a unified story, but it's being proclaimed in a lot of different sanctuaries in our city. Because worship intersects with human culture. There's no such thing as cultureless worship. So what we're going to look at in our second uh, lecture tonight is what are the ways that Christian worship or Christian liturgy intersect with human culture? We're going to look at Catholic, the staple ingredients, contextual, the family recipes, cross cultural, the potluck, and countercultural, the meal of protest. So that's our framework. And then next week, I'm really excited to have Andrew uh, teaching us next week. And basically, we're saying the sanctuary of the city and the street, meaning your ordinary life, Monday through Saturday, when you're outside of the sanctuary. How does the story of Christian worship? in fact, impact and form your life as a as a person as a follower of Jesus. So what we said last week is Christian worship is the responsive glorifying participation of the whole people of God in the eternal communion of love that exists between the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Worship is God's nourishing feast of love that we are invited to every single week. And I can't obviously cover all of that. I can't prove that to you uh, like I did last week in one sense. So I encourage you, we'll make these available somewhere, um, to go back and listen to it. But fundamentally, the framework of worship in the Bible is that worship is a feast. That may be new for some of us. Maybe we think of worship as just a time of praise. But worship is much more comprehensive than that. And it centers around God eating with his people. God drawing his people back into fellowship and communion with him. So I'm not going to go over this again, but again, those are the five C's. Here's basically, because I'm going to be using these terms a lot tonight, I want to redefine them again. When I say worship, what do I mean? Well, that English word comes from the older English word called "worthship." Something you put ultimate worth or value in, something you reverence, something you, uh, in the Hebrew and Greek words from which we get our word worship, it is uh, a term that means to bow down in the presence of someone that is greater than yourself. So a commoner, when a commoner comes into a king's court in the Old Testament, he falls down and worships the king. He references the king. And so that's the same as we do with our creator, God. We bow to him because he's the one worthy of praise. And then there's this phrase, liturgy, that you might have heard and that I'll use tonight. What fundamentally is liturgy? Well, it is a term that's used in the Bible, and it basically at its root means a religious service. We talked about last week how uh, when Zechariah, uh, does the father, not Zachary, is his name Zachary? Yes. Zachary, the father of John the Baptist, right? Yes. yes. Is that true? Good. Bible trivia for the pastor. Anyway, the father of John the Baptist, it says in the, in the early chapters of Luke that he was basically doing his shift at the temple as a priest, and it said, when he finished his liturgy, he left and went home. Liturgy is a religious service. It's a corporate religious service rendered to God by the people. It includes Sunday worship the daily prayers of the church, baptism, the Lord's Supper. The liturgy is a drama involving both God and the people, the exchange of prayers and graces taking place in sacred time and sacred spaces. So we often just call liturgy, right, the work of the people, the work of the people. And tonight I want to talk about how the work of the people is the work of each kind of people, each culture of people. I wanna talk about how you can't talk about worship without talking about culture. It's a myth to think that there's some uh, neutral reality called worship without it intersecting with who we are as people. So briefly, what is culture? I'm just trying to lay out these definitions here at the beginning. You know, we have a uh, Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission here at Grace DC. And one of their core textbooks that they use when people begin uh, their cohorts is this little book called Christians and Cultural Difference. I really recommend it to you. It's a super quick read and very helpful. But in that book, it it quotes David Smith. Uh, Sorry, it quotes someone else who's not on here. (laughs) But they say, what is culture? They said, the word culture originally meant tilling the land. It's a word that is related to agriculture. Culture refers to the human activity of transforming our surroundings and making patterns, products, and ways of seeing that in turn shape our sense of self. Culture in this sense is not the possession of a few, the supposedly cultured people. Everyone has a culture. Everyone participates just by being human. There is no such thing as culture-less worship. When we craft the liturgy and when we become a congregation or a culture, more broadly speaking. We are making sense of our world by creating a lot of different things, by creating music, by praying in certain ways, by preaching in certain ways, by taking the Lord's Supper in certain ways, by having certain cultural values in our worship spaces. Mm -hmm. And that is how worship intersects with culture. And throughout this lecture, uh, I'm going to be using a text Called the Nairobi Statement on Worship and Culture. Don't worry, I won't be reading straight through it. But the Nairobi Statement on Worship and Culture basically comes from the Lutheran Church, which is a pretty global church. It has churches in Africa and Asia and Europe and North America. And so they put together a committee back in the 90s that basically asked the question: okay, we are a lot of different kinds of Lutherans. You know, we're Lutherans, but the African Lutherans look different from the Asian Lutherans, look different from the North American Lutherans, etc. And they wanted to get a document together of how does worship intersect with human culture. And so they came up with four really helpful categories, uh, some of which I've changed slightly, but they're going to guide us as we uh, go through this talk. So, I'm going to launch right into this. The first C is Catholic. I don't know how you respond to that word, Catholic. Maybe you grew up Roman Catholic. Uh, maybe you have a lot, a lot of strong associations with the word Catholic. But it is a Greek word that is the combination of a preposition, kata, about, or according, and then holos, uh, the whole. It means the things that are in common across the whole of Christianity, basically, is the way you can understand the word Catholic. And that's how we used it tonight. And when you start studying worship in the Bible and worship in the New Testament, inevitably you'll be taken to this text. This is after Peter's Pentecost sermon. This is the birth of the church, the sending of the Holy Spirit, and what do you see the activities outlined uh, for the early Christians? You've probably heard this text before. And those who received Peter's word were baptized. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching the word. And the fellowship, the koinonia, the communion of the saints. And the breaking of bread, which undoubtedly, I think, refers to the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper that Jesus had taught them before he left. And the prayers. So, (laughs) these are the staple ingredients. These are the ingredients that we use to cook up the liturgy, regardless of denomination, regardless of location, across the world. If you were to boil down all of the diversity that is Christianity, from Catholic to Orthodox, to Scottish Presbyterianism, to Pentecostalism, inevitably what you are working with is four fundamental categories. Think about it. The Word, the Bible, the sacraments, of baptism, the Lord's Supper, or if you're Catholic, you got like five more sacraments, of course. Uh, prayer, the language of prayer unto God, and community. Much like eggs, flour, butter, salt, and pepper. Uh, or my favorite example would be chicken, because here's the thing about chicken. Uh, you know, I've only done a little bit of, of world traveling, but what I've noticed is, is that there aren't very many cultures that are opposed to the chicken. Now you can, find, you can find cultures that are opposed to the cow and
1: to the pig, but the chicken, I mean, I feel like everyone eats the chicken. You know That's what I'm exactly. saying? But,
0: but the chicken is cooked up in a lot of different ways. You know, where I'm from, the chicken is fried, okay? With collard greens and mac and cheese. And, mm. Anyway, uh, but I have also lived for a time in China where uh, oftentimes the chicken hung from bodega storefront windows and it had this red glazed color. I don't know if you've ever been in China. but uh, And I ate it with rice a lot in China. And chicken is cooked differently in India, etc. You get what I'm saying, people? God, You get what I'm saying? That the ingredients of worship hold common in in a pretty amazing way across the whole, according to the whole of Christianity, but they are cooked up in a variety of ways. Some cultures add a little extra kick to some of these elements, you know what I'm saying? So worship, sacraments, prayer, and community. And this is uh, from the Nairobi Statement. And so I want you to read and listen along. The resurrected Christ, whom we worship, and through whom, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we know the grace of the Triune God, transcends and, and indeed is beyond all cultures. And the mystery of his resurrection is the source of the transcultural nature of Christian worship. Baptism and Eucharist, the sacraments of Christ's death and resurrection, were given by God for all the world. There's one Bible. It's translated into many tongues, and the biblical preaching of Christ's death and resurrection has been sent into all the world. The fundamental shape of the principal Sunday act of Christian worship, the Eucharist, or Holy Communion, is shared across cultures. The people gather. The word of God is proclaimed. The people intercede for the needs of the church and the world. The Eucharistic meal is shared, and the people are sent out into the world for mission. And also, the great narratives of Christ's birth and death and resurrection and the sending of the Spirit and our baptism into Him provide the central meanings in transcultural times of the Church's year, especially Lent, Easter, and Pentecost, and to a lesser extent, Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. The ways in which the shapes of Sunday Eucharist and the Church year are expressed, they vary by culture, but their meanings and fundamental structure is shared around the globe. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one Eucharist. So worship is unity in midst amazing diversity. Worship is unity in diversity. Worship is extremely diverse in its expression, but it's amazingly unified in its overall content, which finds its central focus in the person of Jesus. The Word made flesh, the Bible. The one who we're baptized into, baptism. The one whose body and blood we eat and drink upon, the Lord's Supper. The one through whom we pray, and the one whose body we are. Word, sacraments, prayer, and community. And the thing that we have to do as Christians is to nurture a love of the Catholicity of the church. We have to nurture within us a love of the church global and historic, and we have to uh, to have the eyes that see and look for the Catholicity of the church instead of always the distinctives, instead of always the polemical things that divide communion from communion. They're important. It's fine that we hold to our principles. I'm an ordained Presbyterian pastor. If anyone knows how to do polemics and fighting, it's Presbyterians. I mean, we come from the Scots or something, so it's like like everyone loves to fight. All right. Paul, Ephesians 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and listen to this. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who was over all and through all and in all. So there's one body. That's what we celebrate. Worship is the assembly of the temple. What do I mean? Well, the temple, of course, in the Old Testament, is the dwelling place of God. It's where God's spirit descends upon in the midst of the people. Well, the temple imagery does not go away in the Bible. It lasts from Genesis all the way until Revelation. But in the new covenant, after the sending of the spirit, the church is called the temple. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself. Being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I love what Andrew Wall says. He says, The Ephesian metaphors of the temple and of the body show each of the culture's specific segments as necessary to the body and incomplete in itself. Only in Christ does completion, fullness dwell. And Christ's completion comes from all humanity None of us can reach Christ's completion on our own. We need each other's vision to correct, enlarge, and focus our own. Only together are we complete in Christ. So the metaphor of each of us being living stones that are built into God's dwelling place as we worship together, as we profess the faith together, it also holds true about Christians across the world. We are all God's stones. And when we assemble on the Lord's day, by God's Spirit, He is dwelling in His temple which is a global communion of saints. And it transforms your vision of Christianity and your vision of all reality to know that there is something amazing and mystical happening when we join together as the people of God. We feel and experience the Catholicity of the church. So that's the first C. I know it's information. It's a lot of information. But what I want you to take away again are the staple ingredients. Bible, the word, sacraments, prayer, and community. But, as I said, those ingredients become family recipes, alright? You, you, uh, you can eat cake at your friend's house, and it tastes different than the cake your mom makes, you know what I'm saying? The ingredients get cooked up differently, and so, uh, I, can't, I can't adequately explain that to you, I have to show it to you, because these are, these are things you learn experientially. And so last night we talked. Last week we talked about the Psalms and the fact that they're the, the basic core content of of worship for the people of God for thousands of years. Well, the Psalms uh, is a word that means song, and originally Psalms were always sung uh, in addition to being prayed. And so I, I picked out some examples of singing the Psalms, and basically if, if the song if the Psalms are the the um, staple ingredients. I want you to see how they're cooked up differently. This would be one example. This is from a church called the Greater Allen Cathedral, and uh, it's in Manhattan, New York City. This is Psalm. This is based on Psalm 63, verse 1 through 4. Listen and enjoy. <laughs> Next line as a method of teaching the song and the words, and the, and the choir responds in, in response to the leader. Anything else? Joyful. It's joyful. Extremely. There is a choir. There is a choir. <laughs> it's separated into three parts soprano, alto, and tenor. has a classic gospel sound. Um, there's drums. Uh, there's a really busy, nice bass line. There's keys, there's probably five keys <laughs> on the recording. Anyway, I'm, I'm not gonna belabor that point. Let's take, a, let's take this one. This would be Americana folk music out of Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, you might know this artist named Sandra McCracken, Psalm 119. interested in this like me, and you can go look up collections of psalms, some in Syria. Now what I find fascinating about this is that the Syrian Orthodox Church is probably one of the oldest branches of Christianity. Syria obviously appears in early chapters of the book of Acts, so Christians have been there for a long time. And if you want to know what uh, worship uh, close to the New Testament time sounded like, This is probably not a bad bet because the Orthodox don't like to change their stuff too much. (laughs) They kind of like stick to it. Um, And what you'll hear is a very typical pattern of singing psalms, which is called antiphonal. Antiphonal means antiphonal, which means opposite voice. And so what you'll hear, we'll actually do it this Sunday at Grace Mosaic, where where I I lead worship. But the the leader will... uh, Say part of the song and then the people will respond with a chorus. This is a very common way of singing the psalms. And now listen to this. notes don't exist in our scales in the West. They're in between the lines and the spaces, if you know how to read music. Psalm 106 sung in the Cameroons. You'll you'll hear the same concept. It's pretty amazing. You'll hear the same concept of a leader uh, leading part of the psalm and then the chorus responding. They're just going to say hallelujah, hallelujah, which means last week y'all better praise God anyway. But listen to the rhythms and the way that this is cooked up. It's quite different. pattern I could never play that in a million years Um, it was really awesome this is Psalm 92 and uh, I'm I'm not I don't remember this is um, a Latin band and I don't remember what country they're from I should learn that but this is Psalm 92 I don't put all of these out there to be like, oh, you're going to Epcot at a Disney World. <laughs> I put them out there to say the, the ingredients are the same. The Psalms. They're praising God and so many attributes of God and what God has done. And yet they're cooked up in such uniquely beautiful ways. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't mean to tokenize it or, or trivialize it. I mean to say at its depth or at its root. It, it is quite amazing to think about how worship is being embodied and contextualized in the cultures of the world. So, this leads me to the core conviction here, that worship is contextualized. I have become all things to all people, that by the means I might save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them and its blessing. When Christian mission goes to any land, and the kingdom of God goes to any land, it contextualizes. If it's doing ministry faithfully, it contextualizes to where it goes. So worship is contextualized. This is from the Nairobi Statement. Jesus, whom we worship, was born into a specific culture of the world. And the mystery of his incarnation are the model and the mandate for the contextualization of Christian worship. God can be and is encountered in the local cultures of our world. A given given culture's values and patterns, insofar as they are consonant or agree or harmonious with the values of the gospel, can be used to express the meaning and purpose of Christian worship. Contextualization is a necessary task for the church's mission in the world so that the gospel can be ever more deeply rooted in diverse local cultures. I'm going to skip that last part. Our worship ought to make sense to the neighbors in our neighborhood. Our worship ought to make sense for those who are coming into our doors, for those who are around us. That's faithful, contextualized worship. But you have to also know that worship is cultural, and you have to practice cultural self-awareness. This is a video, a part of a lecture that I was at, actually in Michigan a few years ago in Grand Rapids. I always go once a year to the Calvin Symposium on Christian Worship, which is, uh, I believe it's in two weeks, which I'm excited about, because it's usually a gathering of people from over 80 countries and like t- tons of denominations and traditions all getting together to talk about Christian worship. So if you can tell right now, it's like geek fest for me. Uh, Santa Maria Van is a, a minister, a pastor in, in the west side of Chicago. She, she ministers to mostly Latino and black uh, younger people on the west side of Chicago. And I want you to hear, her. Uh, she's, she's written a book called um, The Next Worship, which is a great book about worship and culture. I want you to, uh, we're going to hear from her a few times tonight, um, because I'd rather her speak than me.
2: Listen to this. In this revelation reality, we see a community that, where there is unity without, with, without uniformity. And so let me talk about a few practical ways that we can do this. I'm going to start with a story. In California, there was a test given to five little kids that were going into, into grade school. And so they gave them the test to, to see, to be able to examine their aptitude and their intelligence, so that they could place them in certain classes in the first grade, right? many of us have been through this. So they gave them this test, and they found out that a particular group of students was not very intelligent. And they saw some commonalities in those students. And as they began to look at the test, they realized these were the questions they were asking. Describe for me in four steps. How to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. (laughs) What is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? I never grew up eating one. They had no idea that the very normal and ordinary question they had asked to this five-year-old was so located in their cultural norms, they didn't know peanut butter and jelly was an ethnic food. Did you guys know peanut butter and jelly Is it in your ethnic food aisle or your grocery store? Yes, thank you. Ethnic food aisles at grocery stores. They, they crack me up, okay? What do you find there in the States? You find taco shells and salsa. And noodles, if you want to make pad thai, and certain kinds of Indian curries in a package, you know. You find ethnic food. The rest of the grocery store is just normal.
0: (laughs) This is what we do often in worship. We place other worship traditions in the ethnic food aisle. (laughs) And our tradition uh, becomes normal. Our tradition becomes expected and right for what God wants. And we make all sorts of theological justifications, biblical justifications for why our practices, the way we preach, the way we respond in worship, the way we embody the worship space, the way we pray, the way we do the sacraments, etc., they become uh, what is the right way to do things. And so when we encounter a difference, we can't even see that our normal is just our normal. It's not the normal. She tells another story that illustrates this. Jemiah, an African-American leader, worship leader, or I can't know what she's doing, and described her first awareness of worship culture when she participated in a primarily white worship event. The person leading the worship service, she says, urges us all to respond in prayer. So I got up from my chair, ran to the front, and started shouting my prayers to the Lord. After all, this is what I did in my Kojic Church of God in Christ, Black Pentecostal denomination. This is what I did in my Kojic church at home. I realized, though, that I was the only one that responded that way. This was normal prayer time for her. As she spent time with the community, she realized her prayer was not normal for all, but it was for Kojic. So she learned to adapt, allowing herself to be formed by her new community. And in time, she also introduced her friends to her normal. Her expressiveness is not a sign of superior faith. Neither was the more reserved form of prayer. Each has conformed, I should say, to different patterns of emotional expression. The key for us to seek after an understanding of contextualized ministry is to have a liturgical self-awareness. That's what we talked about last week. To know what our worship cultural values are, and how they intersect with other worship cultures in the worship space. This is especially pertinent to churches in our network, in Grace DC, who are welcoming in a diversity of people, which means welcoming in a diverse background of liturgical expression, of worship expression. So this is getting at a really key thing that is a challenge. For We can say we're about cross-cultural ministry, but if we're not about cross-cultural liturgy, then we're not about cross-cultural ministry. Yeah. And this is a barrier. It is a barrier, but it's also a great potential for beauty and unity. And I want to explore that a little bit. This is what often happens, and Jemiah's example is a, uh, is a common one. And I, I guess I've been in this game long enough. To where uh, wait I want to wait before I before I do that. I had someone uh, living in my house this week. Her name was Suen Chia. She's an old college friend of mine. She's Taiwanese. And she is getting her master's degree at a uh, university in Taiwan now. And she talked about and she's actually getting her master's degree in ethnomusicology, which is the study of music in different ethnicities and nationalities. So she should be giving this lecture, but she talked about how they were discussing in class Indonesian gamelan music. You can go YouTube this. Indonesian gamelan music. And to our ears, as Westerners, it often sounds like uh, what we heard when we heard the Syrian psalms. It sounds out of tune to our ears. But what uh, my friend was saying is that they discussed it in their group. Uh, One of her friends says, it's not the gamelan that's out of tune. What is out of tune is your ears. Your ears have to be attuned to the sound of the gamelan that you're not used to. Worship expressions, we often respond to them as if they're not cooked properly. But actually, the problem is probably our taste buds. I remember being exposed to different worship expressions long ago, and they at first, if you've had this experience, are disturbing to you. You immediately rush to evaluate and judge what is for you just a foreign taste. And if you dedicate yourself to taste testing... After a while, you might find, actually, that it becomes one of your favorite dishes, if you know what I'm saying. As we will discuss, there are times when the Christian faith um, has to, there there are times that the Christian faith has to intersect with cultural values and oppose them. Right now, I think of Western secular materialism and greed, the number one idol in our culture. Uh, But there are still, I mean, there are still certain cultural practices in the New Testament that are revealed that must be challenged. But I find that when people intersect along lines of liturgical difference, they again rush to, this tri- they rush to a place of judgment and evaluation instead of a place of curiosity. And so you hear critiques like this one. And actually, Andrew told me that he, uh, at Grace Downtown one week, got this, uh, this kind of comment card after he was leading worship. And he said he was leading... <laughs> amazing grace. This isn't saying anything about grace downtown. Who knows who filled out the comment card. Maybe you did we'll talk about it. Hey, but the comment said this. He was leading amazing grace and he was kind of doing what they did on that Psalm 63 recording. He was previewing the next line. He was improvising. He was singing over the melody and around it. He was improvising and the the comment card said you know this leader uses way too much individual expression and freedom and they're just distracting. You know, he just made it all about you, man. You're just bringing all the attention to yourself. (laughs) That's the kind of criticism you you hear. You'll hear things like CCM or gospel are so repetitive. They should say, not receptive, I'm sorry. CCM or gospel is so repetitive, they just sing the same lines over and over again. Reminds me of Psalm 136. (laughs) The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. There shouldn't be dancing or shouting in worship. That's not decent or orderly. As we talked about last week, well, I don't know what you do with the book of Psalms. Shouting, dancing, the variety of expression. Or, or they say, if they really knew the Lord, how good the Lord is, then they would show some emotion in the worship space. If we flip it on its side. See, we often rush to the place of judgment and disdain instead of curiosity and encouragement and asking a lot of questions. I remember... Years ago, I was doing—I was just beginning my time in cross-cultural ministry. I was in inner city St. Louis on the south side of the city. I'm going to tell this story, and then we'll take a break. And I was—I had come to know a woman. We'll call her Mary. Mary was very different from me. She was a middle-aged African-American woman that had had a really hard life. Husband had left her. Son had been killed in gang violence just a year before I got to St. Louis. So I want you to picture on a Sunday morning me being at the keyboard, a little 20-year-old white boy. I'm starting to play gospel music, and I'm leading gospel music for some of the first times in my life, and, and my friend Mary, she's on stage, and you know at some point we were doing, I don't know, we would just do a powerful song, like the blood will never lose its power or something like that. And all of a sudden, you know, Mary, she, her body crouched down and she just started low and slow. She just said, thank you, Lord. 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 And it, and it just grew to this place of just, she was shouting it. It was raw. It was like lament and joy and everything mixed in there. And I'm sitting there at the keyboard like,
2: okay, uh, what do y'all want me to do?
0: Like, should I just keep playing? I had never encountered anything like that didn't know what to do. And I was disturbed by it. I didn't like it. I'm just going to be real. I was like, this is not decent. This is not orderly. What if someone comes in off the street? I know what's going on. You know, I just, I was, I was bothered. And I, uh, there was another African American woman on the team, and I was hanging out at her house that next week, and I was processing this with her and went to a place of curiosity with her where I was just like, I don't know how to engage this. But I don't like it. And then my friend, she helped me. She helped me understand the context of Mary's life. And she said, "I want you to imagine that you wake up every day, or many days, wanting to die, because the circumstances of your life are extremely painful and overwhelming. But you go to the worship space, and you're reminded again that week that there's a God who's in control." that there's a God who's so loving and gracious, who cares about your concerns, who cares about your life, who cares about your struggles, who bears your burdens with you. And it just makes you want to say thank you. And not just say it, but shout it. See, it was, and, and, and from that point on, when I interacted with Mary in that space, I'm not saying that I would naturally do that, but what I'm saying is, I started to receive her praise as a gift And through her, I could encounter something of her experience with God in the way that she was imaging God. And I began to receive her offering of praise as a gift and as a way for myself to praise God through her. And those are the experiences that we must have in the worship space if we're going to find unity. It is beginning to accept one another's praise as gift one another's cultural backgrounds and the way that we express ourselves in the liturgy or in praise as gift. Now, this naturally brings up the question like, and I hear this all the time, right? Well, I don't praise that way. Like, I ain't gonna be out there dancing and shouting because, like, that's just not my worship style. Y'all heard that? Mm -hmm. Well, if we put it back in the food analogy, I want to say that that's not unlike saying... Yeah, I don't eat your food, because I like my food. I like the way we cook our food, and I want nothing to do with your food. What it's basically saying is, don't bring in that dish into, uh, into here, because we don't like that kind of food. But actually, as I'm trying to explain, when we open ourselves up to try each other's gifts and dishes, we can actually find the reality that worship style is not static, but it is dynamic. That we form each other, that we inform each other, that we rub off on each other, that we shape each other. And I'll speak frankly, and I have no shame in saying this, is that for me, the African American heritage of of worship healed me of my sort of dichotomized, dualistic view of my body in worship. And it helped me reclaim the fact that I have a body and that if I, in the hallway, can talk to people and use my hands and express myself and be loud and soft, then I can do that in the sanctuary too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not shutting that part off from the worship space. But also, again, this is, it's supposed to be mutual. There are others whose natural worship expressions are silent and contemplative, heavily, heavily intellectual, and that's not necessarily bad. It's just, the the key is, receiving one another's family recipes and dignifying them. All right? So I want to take an intermission at that point, and then uh, I'll see you guys in 10 minutes. All right? All right, so, if we continue on here, if, Catholic is the staple ingredients that make up Christian worship and the Christian worship service, or the liturgy. And contextual are the family recipes, the recipes that get baked up by cultures around Washington, D.C., and around the world. Well, that leads us to where we were getting at the end of the last year, of course, which is cross-cultural. You might have heard that before cross-cultural or when all the different families of D.C. or wherever bring their dishes together into a holy potluck, which is what we were getting into. By your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation or ethnicity, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Now there were in the church at Antioch, this is from Acts chapter 13, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. When we have the view of the New Testament that it's not a bunch of monolithic people, it's a lot of different kinds of people coming together. We can assume that they had to work out a lot of the things that we have to work out when different people come together. Even if you look at this list, Barnabas, uh, who was a a native Jewish man, Simeon who was called Niger, so he evidently had dark skin, Lucius of Cyrene, a North African, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, so class distinction right there, he's uh, aristocracy, don't know exactly his ethnic background. But you start to see in the early chapters of Acts what you can't deny, is that when Pentecost comes, so does multi-ethnicity. So does a church having to figure out what it looks like to live unity amidst great diversity. And so that really changes our view of the New Testament. When you go back and you start reading Corinthians or you start reading Romans or any of these other books, a lot of the core issues that they're working out are culture- Indifference. That's in the Bible. Because the Bible is not Gnostic. The Bible is incarnational. The kingdom of God comes among a people. From the Nairobi statement, Jesus came to be the Savior of all people. He welcomed the treasures of every earthly culture into the city of God. By virtue of baptism, there is one church and one means of living and one means of living in faithful response to baptism is to manifest ever more deeply the unity of the church. So worship is the manifestation of the multifaceted image of God. This is what I like. I like a quote uh, from Tim Keller. This hmm. It's the first time I've quoted Tim Keller. I'm going to give myself a gold star. I just, just now, quoting Tim Keller, all right. This is from a sermon that he preached on Psalm 95 on worship. If you worship monoculturally, it will not show you uh, sorry, on. it will not sh- show you all the facets facets. It won't show you all of the excellencies. The more diverse your worshiping community, the better. The more you have young and old, male and female, all the races, all the classes, the more diverse your worshiping community, the more you're going to get an accurate picture of who God is. Not only that, a worshiping community will not just heal you psychologically and individually, but it will begin to heal the breaches that divide the human race. Sandra Maria Van Upsdall says, we glorify God in a diverse world when our worship acknowledges, honors, and embodies the diversity of God's people in the local context and in the global church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Life Together, God did not make others as I would have made them. God did not give them to me so that I could dominate and control them, but so that I might find the creator by means of them. Now other people in the freedom which which they were created become an occasion for me to rejoice, whereas before they were only a nuisance and a trouble for me. God does not want me to mold others into the image that seems good to me, that is into my own image. Instead, in their freedom for me, God made other people in God's own image. Herman Bobby, the Dutch theologian, once said that the image of God is much too multifaceted to be realized in one individual. He said it can't even be realized in billions of individuals. Meaning to say that when we worship monoculturally and we're not experiencing the diversity of the breadth and depth of who is in our city, of who, who is in our neighborhood in some real way, Experientially, we're getting a less of a view of the image of God, and we should want more. We should desire more. For as in one body you have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Of course, this verse, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Worship is an expression, it is to be expression of three things when we talk about cross-cultural. Hospitality, solidarity, and mutuality. Hospitality, solidarity, and mutuality. I'm going to let Sandra explain it again. The three are hospitality,
2: solidarity, and mutuality. The first is hospitality. Hospitality says to a community of people, we welcome you. We're so glad you're here. We prepared for you. We learned songs in your language. We're aware that you might be in our community. We welcome you here. An example of this to kind of illustrate what it could look like uh, comes from my time as a staff worker at the Northwestern University with InterVarsity. So I was working at Northwestern University when I arrived It had thriving chapters of students. And one of the things I noticed was that there was no outreach to Latino students. I looked at all the different fellowships on campus, all the church fellowships, the parachurch organizations, nobody had Latino students in their fellowships. And so I thought, well, there has to be Latino students on this campus, right? And so I began to ask questions and hang around at the Multicultural Student Center, and yes, indeed, they were there. And so I told my fellowship, we have a multi-ethnic fellowship of the university, mostly East Asian and white, but multi-ethnic. We have an opportunity to reach out to our brothers and sisters. So let's begin to learn songs in their languages. And let's begin to, to prepare for their arrival. And so for five years, we did the work. Five years. And at first, I went, why are we saying it in Spanish? I know Sandra's the only one here who's, who's Spanish speaking. This doesn't make sense, you know? But okay, you know, she's our staff worker. And we'll try it, you know? Year two, it's like, oh. Year three, was like, I just, I just can't even stand this anymore. This is not natural to me. Gospel worship is not natural to me. Singing in Spanish is not natural to me. I can't really enter into worship, whatever that means. I can't really enter into worship. Sandra, why can't we just worship? I said, okay, what do you mean by just worship? What does that look like? Because I was pretty sure my picture of just worship looked very different than her picture of just worship. And remember, they're different. Not good or worse. Better, good. they're just different. So we went through the conversation, we dialogued here, we kept pushing through, and we made it to year five. In year five, we go to this incredible, fantastic gathering of all the students in the Chicagoland area, of all the university chapters. There are 500 students there, the energy is fantastic. This uh, Asian American guy pulls out his guitar, and of course, like that, whenever that happens, a full circle immediately forms around the guitar. I'm not sure what kind of magic is there, but Pull out the guitar, it's like a circle of worshippers. Okay, so there's about 20 students that are there. They're worshipping. They begin to pass the guitar around. They're singing songs in this hotel lobby. I'm sure the workers are thinking, what is happening here with this magical guitar? The students keep coming. These two Latinas start coming down the escalator as they hear the music. So they, the students are passing the guitar. Chinese-American guy grabs the guitar and says, Aleluya, aleluya, mi alabanza sube a ti, en las buenas y las malas, mi alabanza seguirá. If you don't know, it's not Mandarin. It's Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> there were no papers anywhere. There was no screen anywhere. But they had learned to sing this song that was gifted to them by a friend. In the good times and in the bad times, my worship shall rise to you. And those Latinas kept coming down the escalator. And when they got to the bottom of the escalator, they heard the gospel in their own tongues.
0: I love that video. And um, this is really what it's all about. This is the core of it. And I have had several stories that I could share about this. One last summer, Melissa and I were hired to to do, uh, Melissa is my wife, we were hired to do worship for Reformed University Fellowship, which is the college denomination, PCA, down in Panama City Beach. It was mostly um, a gathering of white and African-American students Uh, but we wanted to um, stretch them in some some ways. And we taught them uh, a song, a couple of songs in Spanish. And and one of them was um, the song that we sing, A Grace Mosaic, Everlasting God. You know, the Chris Tomlin song, we just sing it in Spanish as a gesture of of hospitality. And we sang it one night and it, it stretched them and there were a lot of confused faces, but they got through it and after worship, Uh, Two Latina students came up to us, I hadn't seen them, and they had tears in their eyes, and they just said to Melissa and I, they said, you don't know, really, they said what's most meaningful is to see our fellow students actually trying and singing in our language and an expression that Mm -hmm. is our heart. And I don't use those, those stories in a kitschy way. And This isn't kitschy. This is at the heart of what the, the cross-cultural beauty of the worship of the church is supposed to be. It is supposed to be, at, at the very least, a statement that we have prepared for you to come. We have dignified your culture, and we have accepted your culture of worship and your culture of language as a gift for us. We're not using it. We're not exploiting it if we're doing it well. We're displaying the beauty of it. And we're preparing a place for those who are not yet in our doors. She said, as Sandra said, they prepared for five years. Cross-cultural ministry is difficult, and it takes time. Growth takes time. Cross-cultural growth takes time, especially across such a divided and segregated country that we find ourselves in. But are we preparing for the space to say, we've prepared for you to come? Whoever's in your neighborhood. You know, that's... Anyway, that's that's the core... Uh, the heart of it worship is to be an expression of hospitality solidarity and mutuality hospitality is the basic level which is you are welcome here your culture is welcome here you are welcome here solidarity is we stand with you whatever your core concerns are become our core concerns as a culture as a people and finally it gets to the last and most mature stage mutuality here's the microphone it's giving the microphone. It's giving the power. It's giving the music. It's giving the leadership to a culture not your own, especially in our context, uh, non-dominant cultures speaking in America. Worship is unity without uniformity. Praise God. And finally, the last C as I close, I'll do this very quickly so that we have some some, some time for discussion. Worship is countercultural. Christian worship is countercultural. It is supposed to challenge the idols of any country or land or culture that it finds itself in. It is the meal of protest. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies of a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, it's your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you might discern with the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is from the Nairobi statement. Jesus came to transform all people and all cultures, and calls us not to conform to the world, but to be transformed with it. And the mystery of his passage from death to eternal life is the model for transformation, and thus is the countercultural nature of Christian worship. Some components of every culture in the world are sinful, they're dehumanizing, and they're contradictory to the values of the gospel. And so from the perspective of the gospel, they need critique and transformation. Contextualization of the Christian faith in worship necessarily involves challenging all types of oppression, and social injustice wherever they exist in earthly cultures. Worship is a protest against the evil present in God's good world. Just our liturgy is a protest against materialism and greed because we offer up our earthly treasures, knowing that everything comes from God. Worship is to be a protest against our selfishness because we are to honor each other more than we honor ourselves. We're to seek to elevate one another in the worship space. Space worship is a protest against ethnocentrism in the liturgy. That my people are what matters. My people are are the most pure form of worship, whether that takes place explicitly or implicitly. Worship is a protest against sexual immorality because sexual immorality is the worship of the body. It is the worship of the Creator who made our bodies. Instead, worship is a protest against violence because every week we pass the peace and reconciliation. We turn the cheek. So for time's sake, I'm going to end it there. That's the story we told last week, that God calls the people and God sends the people out. And in between, he cleanses them through a sacrifice and a priesthood. He consecrates them. He marks them out by baptism. He gives them his words and the promises and signs and seals of his covenant. And finally, God feasts with us. That is the heart of Christian worship. Every week when you walk into your worship space, take note, the first thing you run into is a table because worship centers around a table. But that story in the sanctuary is told in a lot of different sanctuaries in our city. And I hope what I've tried to display tonight are the dynamics, the real dynamics. And I know this talk might have felt maybe a little sociological, but it's important that we take note of what's really going on. Because if worship is incarnational, then it has to do with real humanity, real culture, real social dynamics, real history, real racism. Real uh, divisions of education and class, etc. And we have to know the dynamics that are going on so that we can name them. And that kind of removes their power over us. It allows us the chance to repent, to change, to reimagine our worship spaces. Worship is Catholic, contextual, cross cultural, and counter cultural. And I thank you for listening to this part. And, uh... did this create any questions for anyone? We had some good discussion last week. Yes, sir. Um, I'm part of the worship team. Yes. I'm mm-hmm. Um, One question that I've had for many years, I used to have, I'm kind of over it now, but like yeah,
1: with the sort of like, you know, the old frozen chosen monster that we have. Well, yes, I've, I've heard, heard this experience.
3: before. What, um, What is it that justifies, or in your mind, like, when you have lyrics and songs that are calling you to dance and sing and do emotions, like, what exactly is it that, how does it culturally translate into, like, thinking and, 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 like, what you would say, uh, the non-expressive forms of worship? How do
0: they have a place when they have those kind of songs and lyrics? How does dance translate to not dance, is what you're asking me? (laughs) It doesn't. Uh, So last week I talked about this reality, is that worship is to be the gymnasium for the soul, like the book of Psalms. It tells us to dance and clap and be joyous. It tells us to kneel and reverence and be silent and still. And it is my honest conviction that worship needs to have all of that going on. Now, it is also the truth that some demographics and populations, based on their historical upbringing, I'm going to raise my hand, have a hard time bringing in shouting, clapping, dancing, etc. Into the, into the worship space. But I actually view this as the opportunity for growth. And so that's why I've talked about very explicitly what I've talked about tonight, is that there are some there are some worship expressions that have a strength that other expressions have a weakness. And I think that we are supposed to uh, chisel each other, we're supposed to shape each other. And as I said tonight, like I actually do think that we should follow the directives of the music and that we should follow the directives of the worship leader and grow into that. Now, at first, I didn't know what that meant for my body to try to dance <laughs> in worship. Um, But you know what I did? I started watching the people around me. And I started watching the people who looked like they knew what they were doing when it came to dancing. I'm still not great at it. But I would say that, and what I always tell people as pastors and worship leaders is that this is a reciprocal thing. The worship space is reciprocal. So the worship leader needs to see you worshiping. It is a ministry to him or her. And their ministry to you is leading you to that place. I talked about last week that everyone is being manipulated in worship. It's just whether a sense of you're being manipulated to silence and apathy or kind of sh- closing off yourself or whether you're being encouraged and, quote, manipulated to open yourself up. Um, but I, I do think the worship space needs to, needs to be moving in a lot of different emotional directions because that's what the scripture has for us. As, is that helpful any, in any sense? Okay. Just keep encouraging people to dance. I don't know what else to say. Like, uh, this takes time. But I think that we, who are the um, maybe non-dancers, have to challenge the notion that our worship style is a static thing. It is dynamic. It can be shaped and formed. And maybe if the Lord gave you in his word commands to shout and clap and dance, there's something good for you there. So,
2: yeah. Um, so I understand intellectually what you're teaching and, uh-huh. um, and how we may perhaps purpose in our hearts to experiment and try new things and so on. Yes. But is there a role for, say, the Holy Spirit in mm-hmm. that, uh, in, in kind of
0: the stretching our muscles in different ways in uh, of Christian and how kind of does that play out? Know? Absolutely. If we're the temple and the dwelling place of God is us by His Spirit, I think where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And being filled with the spirit, um, in some ways, I'm going to go all Pentecostal here, does remove some of our inhibitions to how we look to other people. If we're like David, dancing before the ark. I will become even more undignified than this, you know? And I don't have a problem quoting that. I, I mean, it's, I, I think there, there is a role, an essential role, of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the worship space. And I think that I myself have a lot to learn about how to answer this question. But I know it's mysterious, and I know it's real, because I've experienced it in worship, Um, in the sense of, like, you're... I would say they go hand in hand to some extent, you know. I mean, I think that God gives us postures of openness or kneeling or something like that, because our postures, in some way... uh, show us that we are not mind and body. I, I'm, I'm very hesitant to even answer this question of like, if you open yourself up physically, you'll open yourself up spiritually. Because I'm creating that dichotomy just by answering that question. It's more just open yourself up, yourself. So, that's what I said.
2: Yeah. How do you think we could reach more people from non-professional class? Because I, if I look around, almost everyone a professional, mm-hmm. but the city is not that. So, what are we doing that is keeping them away?
0: I think there's um. We've talked about this, and uh, in, in our church context, it it is hard. That's some people would say that the 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 class and education divide is more intractable than the ethnic or racial divide. Uh, There are just some some social barriers, some liturgical barriers, you know, depending on our style of worship, if it's more wordy or if it's more based around literacy or education, uh, that can be a barrier. Um, So I do, I'll just speak just practically here. I do think about that in some of the elements that I choose in worship. I do think about them often through the rubric of what if I couldn't read? And I try to um, think about elements that are repetitive, that are easy to learn. And we try to have have a worship style at Mosaic that's maybe a little bit more oral, in that sense, uh, spoken and heard. But ultimately, I think that a lot of people come into our congregations, if they're not, quote, professionals or educated, and um, they just struggle with that social environment, feeling out of place. And I think that the only thing that can transform that is is trust, relationship, and um, I'm also open to any wisdom anyone else has on that. But those are some of the dynamics that play there. Yeah. Uh,
2: given that um, <coughs> lots of churches will follow the uh, basic principles, they'll have variations on worship. As you as just a person who goes to church, how do you decide where to go to church? I mean, especially if you just if you have a particular worship style that you like, do not naturally gravitate towards that in a church? Uh-huh. Are you meant to purposefully be countercultural and how worship? Because it's just this feeling people will go to church and just be like, I feel at home here, this feels uh-huh. right. And I for me it's like worship is really like when you hear it, you just kind of feel like this is right. I feel the like this is where I want to be, yeah. yeah. So what kind of the, what should you be
0: looking for as a person who is trying to just attend church? Well, I'd say, again, that the music, I've I've focused some on music tonight, but the music is not worship. Worship uh, Music is a part and an integral part of Christian liturgy, but it's not the whole thing. And I said worship is a feast because I think that Sunday morning service centers around the table and the marriage of the word proclaimed and preached and the meal served. So I think we have to challenge the notion that I need to go to the church with the best, the the music that I like and the preaching that I like. Um, Because I think that liturgy and community is a lot more diverse than that. But obviously picking a church, that's a a whole other um, conversation. On wisdom and mission to where God is calling you you know I'm always I'm, I'm a parish pastor so I'm always going to encourage people if you can walk to church that's preferable you know to be at church in the places that you're living so that your uh, your life lived out of the sanctuary is quite natural it flows from there and your communities is there um, but also I've known a lot of saints who have put up with a lot of music they didn't like because the Lord called them to a community for a time and I view them as saints and as models for dying to your own desires for the sake of where God has put you, for the sake of what God's calling you to do in a city at a given time. Um, So we we do have to rebel against this whole consumeristic, cookie-cutter, I find the worship space that fits me best and speaks my heart language because it's not about you. Yep, there you go. Yes, thank you.
3: So, I mean, how do we kind of balance some of the things? Are really about kind of creating hospitality space and, and branching out, recognizing that maybe our congregations are not always as diverse as we want them to be, uh-huh. and you know, kind of protecting ourselves against the criticisms of cultural appropriation, for example. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, not trying to kind of adopt things, especially people that adopt Yeah. There's difference of opinion about the answer to your question Um, and even within the conversation of cross-cultural worship, there's a lot of people that would say a lot of different things. I think what I would say, point one on creating hospitality is just asking the realistic question of who is in your midst. It's asking the realistic question of who is around you, who is actually accessible to your worship space. And are you creating hospitality for them? And the fact is, you might not actually know. You might not actually be aware. Um, so maybe you need to, to learn that, or you do need to learn that. Um, so at Grace Mosaic, for instance, uh, I'm just gonna, uh, most of what we do, a lot of what we do falls into neo-soul, gospel, r and funky sounding music. And then we do folksy kind of hymns, stuff like that. And then we do some. Uh, Latin-flavored music because that makes sense for our parish, you know, and we feel that, you know, as of now we, we, we feel like we are embodying that hospitality to, to be ready for other people now, cultural appropriation is, people do ask me about that a lot, because they're like, man, God, we're just white musicians at our church, how are we supposed to play gospel music, you know, or something like that is the classic question appropriation to me is all about how the cultural artifact is being used. If it's being used in an honoring way and being received as a gift, even if done kind of inauthentically or not, like, you know how it is. You know, you watch people play a certain kind of music and you're like, oh, that's not quite how you actually do it. <laughs> if we're doing it out of the spirit of love and out of the spirit of integrity and out of a spirit of receiving another culture's artifact as a gift, and again, not being Epcot about it, not being, Virtue signaling about it. Like, ooh, look at us. We're enlightened. But honestly, we are experiencing that deep sense of Catholicity as we do it. And then I think that it, it honors the Lord. Does that make sense? All right. You know, let's um, sing ourselves out here. If you would rise now as you're able. listening, guys, and come back next
1: week when Andrew works out how does this look in our daily lives.